Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. Thank you for being here, and as always, thank you for listening. Today, we're going to conclude our short series, our mini-series from the book of Jonah, and we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 4, looking at the last chapter in this short book, often referred to as a minor prophet, but one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. Now, most of you have probably at least heard of the classic tale entitled The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In this story, Dr. Jekyll is a kind, intelligent, and well-respected scientist with many equally well-mannered friends kind of living in a high society. But he also secretly likes to dabble in experimental and dark science. And so throughout this short novel, a far more nefarious character known as Mr. Hyde commits a series of crimes and is viewed as a disgusting and evil man, giving into pleasures and all sorts of wicked brutality. But near the end of the story, in a major plot twist, the author reveals that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are in fact the same person. Dr. Jekyll had created a potion that brought out an evil alter ego in the form of Mr. Hyde, and this alternative personality became harder and harder to control. Thus, we had the presence of the same, but two very different personalities. Now, some of you may have heard critics of Christianity make a similar accusation about God. It goes something like this. In the Old Testament, people will say, you read the story of a vengeful, aggressive God who is constantly pouring out his wrath on people who displease him. There's fire and brimstone that rains down from the heavens. The earth cracks open and swallows people. Plagues bring civilizations to its knees. And God orders the destruction of entire people groups. But then, when you read the New Testament, God takes a different approach. You have Jesus. Jesus with children sitting on his lap. He tells us to turn the other cheek when our enemy slaps us on our face. He discourages war and conflict. And every other word from his mouth seems to be something about love. The love of man, the love of friends, the love of God. Therefore, these critics suggest, your faith presents two completely different views of God. A kind and loving God in the New Testament and a fearful, angry God in the Old Testament. Well, thankfully, this dilemma for us as Christians can be solved, and this problem can be solved by the highly technical, in-depth strategy of reading. And if I'm feeling salty when I make this claim, I will usually say something like this to people that make this accusation. I will say something like, not only have these people not read either the Old or the New Testaments, but it would seem that they have read very little of anything ever in their entire life to arrive at such an inaccurate conclusion. And in Jonah 4, we see God, in the Old Testament, mind you, presented in a way that is abounding in love and grace in the midst of impending judgment. We see God's heart, again, full of mercy, contrasted with that of the human heart, which is filled with the desire for wrath and destruction. So here's Jonah 4, as all chapters in the book of Jonah, it's a short one, We'll read it its entirety, and then, of course, we'll go back over some of the key points that we have here in Scripture. Chapter 4, verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under its shade till he should see what it would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So chapter 4 brings this brief story to its conclusion, and it has an unexpected ending that sort of turns the tables on the readers and asks us to consider a big question for ourselves. Now, we'll get to that in a moment, but we're going to go through this largely verse by verse to understand this great truth that God is telling us in this story of the prophet Jonah. And so the very first thing that we read in Jonah 4 is that whatever has happened has displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, what displeased Jonah exceedingly? Well, we have to go back to the closure of Jonah 3 to understand Jonah's displeasure. And the very last statement there in Jonah 3 reads, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You see, the repentance of the Ninevites displeased Jonah, but the biggest frustration that made Jonah white-hot with anger was that God relented of destroying the Ninevites. He stopped. He chose not to do it. And you might recall that Jonah had warned the Ninevites when he finally went to the city that they had 40 days until God would overthrow the city of Nineveh. And this was the same terminology that was used of the eventual destruction of other infamous cities in the Bible like Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jonah clearly had the idea that God would destroy Nineveh in a similar way. This fire and brimstone, scorched earth sort of deal that would happen to Nineveh. Now how many preachers do you know who would get angry at a person that chose to repent and gave their life to God. Well, hopefully you know no one like that. Yet Jonah is not just mad, he's exceedingly angry. And this phrase is used several times, you may have noticed. Exceedingly angry. Not only was this strange, it was very strange because Jonah was upset at the success of his preaching. 
And he's very intense here because the language in this original Hebrew is extremely strong. In fact, translated literally from Hebrew to English, it renders that Jonah thought this was exceedingly evil that God was sparing the Ninevites. But interestingly, Jonah prays to God about this matter. So we read that in the next verse. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my country? So two things can be true here at the same time. One, we have to appreciate Jonah's honesty. Although his heart and his mind are not in the right frame of mind, and there is misunderstanding about God and God's character and God's mercy, Jonah at least does turn to God in prayer. You know, frequently after something unfortunate or difficult to understand happens to a person, or there is an event that causes confusion or just some kind of great grief or trauma in a person's life, they'll often say, I don't understand why God would allow something like this to happen, whether it's to them personally or it's on a larger scale or something of that nature. And my usual, my typical approach to this was to try to offer some type of explanation. I tried to give people who had these questions some biblical understanding of why God some allows some events to take place that we just don't seem to understand. And I want to be clear, I certainly believe there's a place for doing this sort of work. In fact, at some point, I think it's necessary. But I've learned that this is not my initial response any longer. So when people make comments like this, especially Christians, when they say, I just don't know why God would have allowed this to happen, I just don't understand, my response now is, well, have you asked him? Have you prayed to him? Have you asked him why he allowed this to happen? Now, I'm not being snarky or clever when I say this, but I am trying to point people to a fundamental reality of faith in Christ. A defining exclusive tenet of biblical Christianity is a direct mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to him, we pour out our souls to him, and in his own way he instructs us, and he most often instructs us and gives us answers through his word. And amazingly, Jonah knew how God was. He knew much of the character of God. He knew it from the scriptures that he had available to him. And these scriptures, based on the timeline, would likely have been the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and possibly even First and Second Samuel. And so listen to the accusation that Jonah makes in his prayer to God. And this serves as a parallel to Jonah's prayer that he had when he was in the great fish. He says, I know that you, God, I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah was angry because God granted repentance to the Ninevites. And the Assyrians, which were uh, the Ninevite group as well, the Assyrians were enemies of Israel. Jonah wanted God to bring judgment upon these people that he hated. Jonah knew that God was full of grace and mercy, and that was why he was afraid to go and tell the people of Nineveh. Jonah said, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? This was at least part of the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He was afraid that they would repent when all along 
He just wanted God to judge and destroy Nineveh, the Assyrian capital. So Jonah himself called on the mercy of God and enjoyed the mercy of God when it was extended to Jonah, but now he resents it when it is extended to others. And this was going to be Jonah's final lesson here, that God's graciousness, his loving kindness, and his mercy would not be extended to just the Israelites, but to any and to all who would receive it. This is so painful for Jonah to accept. It's so difficult for him that he almost seems to turn into a spoiled child here. So here's his response. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. And so we learn here too that this was the reason Jonah had ran from God's call and fled to Tarshish. And he also states that this was the reason that he fled the call. Once again, not out of fear that he would be ineffective, but fear that he would be affected. Fear that the Ninevites would repent and when they do, it's so frustrating to him, he just wants to die. Now remember, we may not approve of Jonah's disposition in his heart but he has at least done the right thing and turned to God with his questions, and God responds to Jonah. And God initially responds to Jonah's questions with a question. The Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Or do you do well to be angry? Now, I want to have some sympathy for Jonah here. Jonah, in expressing his anger against God, He was being honest about his feelings, which was something good. But we should never for a moment think that our feelings are all justified before God. God asks questions because if we will be humble and reflective, these questions reveal our heart. They put us on proper ground before God because he has every right to question us and we owe him answers, not the other way around. And when you think back through major moments in Scripture, we see this divine interaction play out over and over again as God questions humanity. In Genesis 3, after the great fall with Adam and Eve, God says, Where are you? What is this that you have done? When Cain kills his brother Abel, God asks Cain, Where is your brother Abel? What have you done? In Isaiah, when he was looking for a person to go and speak to the people, he said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And then, in the book of Acts, the Lord asked Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, you may not be immediately familiar with all of these references, but it drives home the point. God asks us questions to reveal who we truly are. So God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Now the accurate answer was, of course, no, no. It was doing no good for Jonah to be answered, so or to angry. So Jonah's response should have been, No, Lord, all your ways are right, even if I don't understand them. That should be our answer as well. But of course, Jonah does not have that answer. So God prepares a little object lesson here for Jonah. So while Jonah is sitting on this hill, we read that the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. 
So Jonah goes up on this hill, and he seems to be hoping that the repentance of Nineveh maybe was somehow lacking, it just didn't get all the way there, and that perhaps he'll see the city destroyed after all. So he goes outside of the city for safety, again, hoping to perhaps see a mushroom cloud rise high above Nineveh. So clearly, Jonah himself had not repented when God had questioned him. And so God causes this plant to come up over Jonah. So just as God had prepared the great fish to swallow Jonah, now he prepared this particular plant to shelter Jonah as Jonah waited there. And the word appointed is the same language used of the great fish that God had appointed, again showing God's sovereign control over all of his creation. And something amazing happens when this plant grows and provides Jonah some shade and some shelter. Jonah is happy. Jonah is happy. This is the first time that we see Jonah happy in the entire book. In fact, it's the first and it's the only time that we're going to see Jonah happy in the entire book. And so, remember, this is a very intentional object lesson that God is giving. Now, what do I mean by object lesson? Well, I remember when I was little, and some churches still do this today, they would have a children's church lesson for three to four minutes in the front of the church. And so all of the children would walk up and sit down, looking up at their teacher, usually punching each other or picking their noses while the person tried to talk. But the teacher usually had always some object with which to teach a biblical truth. And I remember when I was very little, a man named James Lane did an object lesson using a rubber ball, some dried corn, and a jar. And the dried corn represented all of the activities that we do in our life, and the jar represented the time we had in a day, in a typical day, to do them. And the rubber ball represented time we spent with God. So he put all of this dried corn in the jar first. He filled it all the way up to the top. But then when he placed in the rubber ball at the top on the corn and attempted to close and to seal the lid on the jar or the day, it wouldn't fit. But if, he start, if we started our day with time with God, which was the rubber ball, we put that in there first, and then we put everything else in around it, then we could easily close the lid. Obviously, put God first in your life. The priority of spending time with God first. And I was probably three or four years old, and that lesson has stuck with me all of these years. And uh, James is now the pastor of Oak Grove Baptist Church. So object lessons can be powerful and God uses one here. So Jonah is finally happy. He's not happy that God is going to spare the Ninevites, but he's happy that he has a shade tree. Now, we could say that Jonah's happiness was just as prideful as, of, as his anger because both were about Jonah. It was all about himself. And notice that the wording here is that Jonah was exceedingly glad. He was exceedingly glad. He had been exceedingly angry about the repentance and salvation of those he preached to, but now he is exceedingly glad for this plant. But then, God appointed a worm, there's that word again, appointed, that attacked the plant and it withers. And so the sun beats down on Jonah, there's a scorching wind, and he's hot. He's hot. And there's a play on words here, this double entendre. The ancient Hebrew word for angry is literally to be hot. Now, God had made Jonah literally hot with the death of this plant in this scorching wind. And what was Jonah's response to the death 
of the plant. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. When God took the plant in its pleasant shelter away from Jonah, he just decided, I want to die. And so in the final bit of this story, we learn what the purpose of this object lesson actually was. Once again, God looks at Jonah and he says, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Again, the question. Now recall, God had asked Jonah, Do you do well to be angry that God had spared the Ninevites? Here, God says, Do you do well to be angry that God had destroyed the plant? And in typical Jonah fashion, in response to God's question, Jonah feels totally justified in his anger about the plant, that he's mad that the plant had died. And this is what is so sinister about pride. The tentacles of pride go so deep that even when confronted with the obvious, a deeply prideful person will take a question of rebuke and turn it on its head to further justify their position. Now notice what Jonah had done because of his anger. He had quit. He no longer was doing the Lord's work, but sitting on the side of the hill. He had isolated himself from others, sitting on this hillside alone, and he was now merely a spectator, no longer a part of the hands-on work of the Lord. Each of these things had put Jonah in a worse place, not a better place. And then we have Jonah's last words. It is right for me to be angry, says he, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. These are the last words of Jonah recorded in this book, which is sad, really. We would have hoped Jonah would have repented, softened his heart, and recognized how marvelous it was for the Ninevites to repent, but alas, he does not. However, though these are the last words of Jonah, they are not the last words of the book. God's mercy and compassion still worked with Jonah, teaching him and guiding him to God's heart. God said, you pity the plant, and should I not pity Nineveh? Jonah was upset about the plant, but how much more should God be upset of the destruction of people, those who had been made in the image of God, even if they were enemies of Jonah? He says that they cannot discern their right hand from their left, They can't make moral judgments. It was a way to describe them as hopelessly lost and astray. But the lesson of Jonah is that what he proclaimed in the fish, he must believe himself that salvation is of the Lord and it is not exclusive to any one group or nation. And this same message God makes clear to Peter in Acts, Acts 10, as he says, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So let's wrap this up with a couple of timeless truths. One is love. We see here love in the presence of truth. God did not excuse Nineveh's sin, nor did he condone it, nor did he ignore it. Love came in the presence of impending judgment, not in the absence of it. You know, I say this often because it confronts an odd and destructive spirit of the age that we have, where people believe that faith in Jesus is just about being nice, 
Rather, but that's not true. It's not about being nice. Rather, it is about the salvation offered in Jesus alone and truth revealed in Scripture. Overlooking sin and ignoring destructive behavior isn't loving. It's the opposite of that. It's deceptive, it's passive, it's condemning, and inevitably, even if unintentionally, it approves of a person's path to self-destruction. But sharing truth with the person is the most loving thing we can do. Warning of a judgment to come because we serve a holy God is a loving message to share, despite feelings to the contrary. And secondly, Scripture reveals to us the nature of God. Scripture reveals to us the nature of God. I hope that this statement is simple and obvious, but it's worth stating that Scripture reveals to us who God is. God reveals himself in the Bible to be a God of love, compassion, grace, mercy, and truth. Jonah himself stating that God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. God revealed this truth to the people of Nineveh, and he reveals it today to those who do not know him. Earlier this week, I was in Nashville for work, and as is my habit, when I finished work for the day, I took a long walk, although I have to say I was surprised at how quickly it gets dark in areas that are in central time. But I was in an urban area near the airport, so I was walking through parking lots and on sidewalks that were illumined with this soft white glow of street lamps, and I stumbled upon a building with an interesting and small concrete monument outside with an engraving that looked familiar to me of a two-handed torch. And the building, I quickly discovered, belonged to the Gideons, the Gideons International, the Christian ministry that's been responsible for distributing untold millions of Bibles throughout the world. And when I returned to my hotel room later that evening, out of curiosity, I opened the drawer to the nightstand, and sure enough, there was a Bible with the same symbol of the two-handed torch that had been placed there by the Gideons. And I wondered... How many people, lost, lonely, confused, and in darkness, have picked up one of those Bibles and read of a God who is, gracious, who is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? And with Jonah on my mind, I wondered how many of those people would I have looked at with judgmental eyes, perhaps thinking to myself that there was no hope for them. I hope to have a heart like God and not like Jonah. There will be surprises in what God will do. There will definitely be surprises. You know, the book of Jonah closes with God's question that Jonah does not answer. He says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And I find myself wishing that Jonah would have at least said something. Ideally, that he would have fallen on his face before God and said, You're right, Lord, you're right. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Your loving kindness and mercy is great. Thank you for saving me. And thank you for saving these people made in your image that you love. To God be the glory. Thank you, God. But Jonah doesn't say that. He doesn't say anything at all. But this is intentional in this type of literature of the book of Jonah, because in Jonah not answering the question, the answer is left up to us, the reader, to answer. How would we answer God's question? Do we care about those that we do not know? Do we care about those who have not heard God's truth? Do I care? 
And if the answer is yes, then we ask, God, what would you have me to do? Pray with me if you would, please. Heavenly Father, the story of Jonah is a blunt reminder of how callous and hard our hearts can become. But it is also a great revelation to read that you have always been and continued to be a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, may we take this time to pray for the people in our community, many people who walk and talk and live their lives, yet do not know their right from their left. They wake, they eat, they work, they sleep, and things seem fine, but they do not know you. They do not know their right from their left. And to borrow from the imagery of Jesus, please make the fields ripe and ready for harvest. And may we be willing to share your truth with those that are here so that they may have the chance to repent and turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.